Well, good evening. Welcome to Wednesday night Bible study. It's good to see all of you. I just happen to be fortunate enough to belong to a very good-looking church. But God sees the hearts, and so let's just hope that He thinks the same way. All right. Tonight is communion, and communion is the big time for believers. It is when we are able to come together, focus completely upon our God, and experience a little bit, a little piece of heaven here on earth. You know, preaching and teaching and worship and singing in the corporate body is something that is mysterious, but it is very real. And we find ourselves at an impasse tonight in that if God is really sovereign, He is true, powerful, amazing being that He is, then we have to believe that His will, His sovereign will, has brought us here for this one hour. And for that fact alone, I am very happy and pleased to be with my brothers and sisters. If you have a Bible, yes. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. A very fitting passage for our communion. I've titled this message, All in the Family. And don't worry, we'll make no references except for this one to Archie Bunker. <laughs> Follow along with me in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's play together. Father, we thank you for another time, a special moment that you have brought us into, into your world, into eternity, peering into heaven, hearing your words. And Lord, we love you. We will state it at the beginning and we will state it throughout. And Lord, may we continue to state it throughout this evening. And Lord, we thank you for the table that you've set before us. 
For Lord, truly, this is all about you. It is your work and we are your people. Lord, we love your word. It cleanses us. It challenges us. It prepares us for a greater work. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to our great God and King and ask, Father, that you do that work in us, that you do so well, such an amazing God you are. And, Lord, we pray that you give us grace to do what you ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when it was built for an international exposition in this last century, the structure was called monstrous by the citizens of the city. They demanded that it be torn down as soon as the exposition was over. Yet from the moment its architect first conceived it, he took pride in it and loyally defended it to those who wished to destroy it. He knew it was disdained for greatness. Today... It's one of the architectural wonders of the modern world and stands as the primary landmark of Paris, France. The architect, of course, was Alexander Gustav Eiffel. The famous tower was built in 1889. And there were a lot of people who didn't like it. And for all of its detractors, the one who built it was the one who believed in it most. Much like... The church of Jesus Christ, our church, the church in this world. The world may stand along and say, oh, look at that terrible thing. It just keeps growing and overgrowing. How can you stand to be a part of it? It's not true. It stands against all the philosophies of the world. And yet to the one who made it, it stands in perfection and beauty. Even we ourselves at times are detractors against the church. And yet God has something beautiful and amazing for His church. Well, first of all, we notice that this letter is written to the Corinthians. We know that it was one of the first letters written in the gospel records, probably one of the first chronologically. It was written to a town, a believing center, that had as it were, a very cosmopolitan environment. It was a very important city in the ancient world, and it was far, far away from Jerusalem. The gospel had reached so far beyond the reaches of Judaism, now into what was known as the pagan world, and there was a church there. And the church at that time had become the first real melting pot of the world. And I'll tell you why. Men and women did not hang out together that often. They weren't seen together that often. Men were here, women were down here. You had barbarian, you had Scythian, you had slave, you had owner, you had ruler. And none of these people met really on a social plane. You met with people of which you were a part of in your own social structure. Now... When the church came, it was not uncommon to find that as you looked out into the congregation of people, that there were slave, there were masters, there were bondmen, there were free women, men, people from all parts of the world. It was a real melting pot. And because of this, trouble began to arise in the early church. 
The church at Corinth, first of all, was a growing church. It was very healthy in that sense. It was not stagnant. It was a real growing fellowship, much like our own. But it was an immature church. Keep your finger here and turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 1, Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For there are envy and strife and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Not only was it immature, but it was carnal. But one thing I want you to really note about this, it was normal. You know, the folks who say, I want to go back to the early church. I mean, just change your clothes styles for just a a little bit. Don't drive your car and uh, don't take a shower as often as you do and you'll be back in the early church. Why? Because the early church was comprised of real people just like you and I are real people with real problems. But the great thing about this is that it doesn't seem to hinder God one bit from working among His people. We don't ever hear Him say, All right, you're immature, that's it. I'm not going to work with you anymore. In fact, we see just the opposite. He brings His apostles and teachers into the church to rebuke, to build up, to teach, and to restore. They were suffering, as I will put it this way, they were suffering from an it's-all-about-me syndrome. And there were many obstacles to their communion. Look with me at verse 18 in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. The word that's used here in the Greek for church is ekklesia. And it simply means an assembly or a congregation, a group that is gathered together. The early church, and even today is true, was never a building, but it was a body. It was believers. The body equal believers. The believers were on earth, local, around Corinth, around whatever city the letter was written to where uh, believers had congregated. But it was also worldwide. Anyone who had called upon the name of Christ was considered a part of the body of Christ. And even beyond our borders here, up into heaven, those who've gone beyond, that is the body of Christ. It's real. It's not a building. It was organic and not contrived. And this is what I mean by that. It is ordained by God and relational. This is something that God put together. Not a group of guys sat around and said, Oh, what do you want to do today? I don't know. Let's start a church. At least nobody around here. God ordained it. God began it. And it's His work. It is also good to note that this church is a work on the move. It is not static. It is a movement, not a monument. It is not a monument erected to some dead person. It is a real, organic movement. And then finally, we need to note this, that it is a work in progress. The church is not finished. One day, 
the trumpet will sound and the age of grace will be over with and God will call his people. And at that point in time, this age that we currently live in, where the church is prominent, where God is working specifically through this group of people that he has called out from every tribe and nation in the world, that day will end and the church age will be over with. But until then, we are still a work in progress. And so it's easy for us to look back at the Corinthians and say, how immature, how sectarian of you. But the truth is, they're our brothers and sisters because we still haven't made it into perfection ourselves. First of all, we notice there is a first obstacle to communion. He says in verse 18 that he notes that there are divisions among you. The Greek word there for division is schismata. Hence we get the word schism. It means to tear or to break along. And he says, it's been reported, and I know, I have to believe that it's true, that there are divisions among you. First of all, we notice that there are divided loyalties in their leadership. Look back with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll pick it up at verse 10. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment, for it has been declared me to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And let me sum up what he's saying here. He's saying, is there any man, any name available to the church at that day, and even to us, that we can claim and say, this person was the person who began the church? This is the man, this is the woman that we would give credit to and say, this is where the work of God began. He said, no, it's all been a work of God. An example, how many of you like listening to Chuck Swindoll? I love him too. How many of you like John MacArthur? Now, how many of you would like to fight and discuss to see who teaches better? You say, well, Dave, that sounds stupid. And that's what Paul's saying too. It's kind of stupid. It's kind of crazy. Well, I, you know, I don't like listening to him because he does this, and I don't like listening to him because he does that, and that guy just made me mad, so I turned him off. The reality is it was actually God who created the men, who gave them blood in their body, oxygen in their lungs, and a breath and a voice, and it gave them the Word of God, and it really has little to do with the vessel. It has all to do with God. Some would say, well, I like the NIV. Or I like going down to this church because they have worship this way. Or I like going to this church because I like the smell of incense. And it goes on and on. I mean, I like the smell of incense. I, I don't know. Now, beware. There are dangers in divisions. Look with me at James chapter 4. And we'll begin with verse 1. It's a very common, familiar passage. In verse 1 of chapter 4 of James, he says, Where do fights 
come from among you? Do they not come from your own desires, your pleasures that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder. You covet to obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now imagine for a minute that your body had a conversation. It's kind of scared, scary, I know. But imagine one day the arm said, look, I'm sick of being tied to this body. You guys are keeping me back. I mean, I just know the places I could go. I mean, I, I always wanted to be a hand model and me and the, the, the hand would just run off and we would do great things. And then you have the mouth who pipes in and says, <laughs> foolish arm, where will you go? No one, you can speak with no one. Well, the arm says, well, I have sign language. Yes, but if you depart from the body, you will dry up. It's your source. It's your life. And the brain looks at him and says, wow, it's the mouth speaking. Imagine that. (laughs) And the argument goes on and on. And finally, the ears screams out and says, would you guys just keep it quiet? You're driving me crazy. And finally, you hear the feet say, look, if you guys don't settle down, me and the legs are going to take everybody on a 15-mile run. (laughs) Sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? And a division in the body is somewhat ridiculous. Division for the sake of personal ambition or lust tends to cause great damage on the local body. First of all, we note that it divides brothers for the wrong reasons. A right reason would be for a brother and sister to divide because someone says, I'm sinning, I don't care, I call myself a Christian. And the other brother goes to him and warns with them and says, you must stop for the sake of Christ. And they said, I won't stop. And therefore the brother says, okay, good, I'll leave you in your sin. That's a good reason to divide or for the sake of doctrine. But it divides brothers and sisters for the wrong reason. Then we also notice that it usually, not always, but usually takes our focus off of God and His Word and places it on a man, either projecting good, bad, or evil on that person. Also, it damages the name of Jesus Christ and the church in the local community. People who are not believers, other Christians... Love to say bad things about other churches. I don't know why, because we probably all need a big old spanking or something. I don't know what it is, but it's not very good. But yet, the community likes to hear it. And when there's divisions among us, there is cause and rise to blaspheme the church of God. But worst of all, and I want us to pay close attention here, is that division for selfish reasons causes doubt and confusion among new believers. I'll give you a personal story. Years ago, I started a Bible study back in Taos. Just a couple of guys. And driving back and forth to work, there was a rough dude who was a musician and played in bars forever. And I just shared the gospel with him. Share the gospel with him. Read the word to him. Keep going. And eventually, he came to, the, he came to Christ. He gave his life to the Lord. And so the the buddy that I was with, we were both Christians. We were excited. And uh, we were going to train this guy, 
Help him grow in the Lord. Help him become a strong new believer. And the first week of this guy's new life in Christ, my buddy takes him off to some crazy church. And they start slapping him, and they were doing all this casting stuff out of him, and the guy was totally freaked out. And I thought, what are you doing to this guy? So I called him up on the phone, and I gave him a piece of my mind, which is always wrong, by the way. (laughs) I'm still embarrassed. And he calls this young believer, tells him that I yelled at him, and this new believer comes over to my house weeping, and he said, I never wanted to cause division between the two of you. I am so confused. I am so hurt that I've brought division between my two friends. And I collapsed when he left my house, and I said, Oh, God, forgive me. It causes such damage among those who are young and new in the faith. But verse 19, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, lets us know that there is a time when division is necessary and even positive. Look with me. He says, For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. This phrase there, there must be, translates from a single word in the Greek, it is die. And which means, literally, it is necessary. And sometimes throughout Scripture it has been stated that this is the divine compulsion, die. It is necessary. Not all division is destructive. But the question we ask is, why is it necessary? First of all, division in the church is necessary, first of all, for doctrine and truth. Why? Because it reveals a person's heart and motive. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Let's hear those pages. That's the best sound in the world. John says here, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. It weeds out false prophets and the fakes. For doctrine's sake, for the purity of the church, division sometimes is good if someone will not adhere to sound doctrine. I'm not talking about personal ambition. I'm talking here about sound doctrine. Also, it is good, we note, in the case of Paul and Barnabas, their gospel efforts were doubled. You'll remember, they didn't, one of the guys, Paul, didn't like John Mark. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, said, Hey, let's take him with us. And Paul says, No, he's a flake. He'll wear us down. And so there was a sharp contention between them, the Scripture says, and they divided. Now, here's the great thing about that. At first, that type of division is tough on a personal level, but it's good for the church because the body of Christ is doubled in the world. It furthers the work of Christ on the earth. And then finally, as we note in this passage, is that it reveals true godly leadership in the church. 
Notice the second half of verse 19. It says that those who are approved may be recognized among you. The word here is a Greek word that means to pass the test. Oftentimes it's used of like a refinement of gold or a precious metal where you have the separation between the true element and the dross. Here's a a very contrasting idea, but you'll know that it's true. Evil oftentimes helps reveal what is good. Evil oftentimes helps reveal what is good. Um, Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to keep reading throughout the Bible. I hope your thumbs don't get carpal tunnel. But you could say you were suffering for the sake of the gospel. (laughs) Technically. He says in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before, we were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come to you from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved... There's that word again, approved by God, entrusted with the gospel. Even so, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. Later on in this passage, he goes on to say through verse 12, that God is witness. You have been a witness. In essence, he's saying we have been approved and proven in the church. And oftentimes... We can look at a leader and we say, man, this guy's going through it. But you know what? It is God's refinement. It's God's way of purifying and using you and me and building us up and growing us up in a way that we can be used, tested, available to be disseminated throughout the body of Christ for the Lord's use for his purposes. So therefore, it is positive. Division brings out the best and the worst in a church. One thing I have to note here, and I want you to take this away with you, is that in divisiveness, I've come to believe and realize that there are very few heroes and very few villains. When you dig past all the bad attitudes and the bad activity, you go back and you find that same old lovable person who you once hung out with, but who at this point is acting contrary to the will of God. Few heroes, few villains. Okay, second obstacle to communion we notice here is not only was it a divided church, but it was a self-centered church. Look at verse 20 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Here's the background. We're told from early church history that the church instituted what is known as the Agape Feast. 
some of the early historians accused us of weird, strange orgies because of the name. But all it meant is that this whole weird conglomeration of people would come together and spend time with each other and bring their food and share what they had in common. Well, here's what happened. You had folks who had a lot, who were probably new in the faith, weren't that mature, showing up with all their food, and they didn't lay it out on the potluck table. It was just sort of kept over here with their family and their friends. And then you had the slave show up who probably hadn't had a good meal in all week. And so on one side of the room, you got folks who were throwing down, hey, 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 pass me another ham sandwich here, buddy. This is awesome. And then down on the other end, you got a buddy who's sitting there quiet and he's just starving to death. And there's no sense of community. This type of selfishness breaks down the ability for us to commune together in any sense. If you've been blessed, let me just say this. If you've been blessed with goods, if you've been blessed with abilities, whatever God has given you, it is much easier for you to live life with an open hand to give to others than to live with a clenched fist hanging on to what you have and rejecting those around you. It's much easier. God has given you that maybe for someone around you so that you can have communion with someone who actually needs what God has given you. Now, selfishness has an element of shamelessness in it, in its actions. It wants what it wants when it wants it. This sort of attitude and behavior has nothing to do with the nature of Jesus and his church. I'll tell you why. Because we live in a world filled with humans that gets tired of people imposing on them. Don't you get that way? I mean, when I go home, I hide in my house. I don't like to answer the phone. I always like to peek through the window or send one of the kids, who is it? Primarily because I spend all of my time with people. And people are the things that actually give me joy because this is the way that God has created me. But sometimes I just want to be away from them. But if you nurture that kind of attitude that says, I want everything for me, then what happens is you turn ugly and all the goodness that God had given you begins to turn against you. I love what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. I'm sure your arm's tired. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort, any love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you... Look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. One attitude destroys communion. The other removes the obstacles to communion and allows it to flourish. Judging by your actions, I won't judge them. Which one are you doing? All right, let's move on. Verse 23. We move from the it's all about me syndrome 
to Paul regulating and correcting our view to saying that it's all about Jesus. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It was possible that this was probably the earliest written account of this whole idea of the Lord's Supper or communion. And in this passage, he gives us a reflection of the Passover meal, which Jesus and his disciples had taken, which pointed us all the way back to the time of Egypt, when God delivered the children of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians by the death angel. It was the final plague that freed them from the world. But when Jesus instituted this, It was the night he was betrayed. There were four cups. There was the pronouncement and the singing and the reciting of the Hillel Psalms, which were Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And then there was the third cup in the event known as the cup of blessing, which was just after the meal, the roasted lamb, the breaking of the bread. And this was the cup that was spoken of here, the cup of blessing. And then finally they had another cup of prayer and they left and singing in the Hillel Psalms. This is what Jesus was speaking of. But what I want to draw our attention to in this brief moment is that in this meal we see that Jesus is inviting us in. Us, I mean the body of Christ, I mean humanity. He is inviting us into fellowship to the perfect meal. I don't know about you guys, but I love eating. Some men's sins go unnoticed, but some men's sins are before them. It's very biblical. However, what I like best about meals is sitting around with friends and conversing. And it just seems the way that God has created us is that we love to get together and eat and have any excuse to hang out into fellowship. And Jesus in this this instance is speaking to us about real, tangible intimacy. He says, take, eat. This is my body. Drink this. This is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant. He's asked as if he's saying, I want you to take in who I am and to be part of me. Now, if he was just a man, who cares? Only his close friends would care. But for us, mankind, this is the heart of humanity. This is the heart of mankind that says, I want to know God. How come God isn't here? How come God doesn't have a big angel in the sky proclaiming his word to people? This is the heartbeat and the desire and the dysfunction of humanity. They want to know God. And here he is at this juncture in history saying, I want intimacy and fellowship and communion with you. 
Not only this, is it intimacy, it is true honor and worship to God. Let's look at the second half of this verse, as well as verse 25. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Note, when we stop and remember what the Lord has done, we lavish upon him true, biblical, unsoiled worship. When we stop for just one moment, it's not contrived, it's not made up. Oh Lord, to thank you for the flowers that you made. But we, we look back to what he has done on the cross. How he has brought us in. How he has made us a new people. How he has filled us with his spirit. We offer to him true, unsoiled, pure, biblical worship. And look with me at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here we reveal not only our intimacy or our worship, but this reveals our passion. This is the core of who we are. And I'll explain why. Because this is something that we proclaim. Literally, it means to shout it out and let the world know that we are a people who love our Lord and we will proclaim it every time we get together, whenever we meet, all over the world, all over the city, when we get together, we proclaim that we love Jesus. We love Jesus. It is our passion. It is the heartbeat of who we are. When we come to the Lord's table and we say, Oh Lord, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for bringing heaven to earth in my heart. Thank you for creating a body that proclaims your name in a world that is so contrary to the will and the things of God. Oh, we love you. And that is what this table is about. Love. For our God. As often as you do this, you do proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Some would ask, when is He coming? Well, I've prepared a tape and a study, and I've discerned the exact date, and for $25.95, you can pick it up after the service. It's not true. Sorry. Last couple of weeks ago, we covered 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And I want to bring your attention back to this little verse because I didn't get to finish it. So please bear with me. But he says in verse 8 of that chapter, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God will come. He's not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness. He will return. But this whole idea of God being outside of time and us living so close to eternity is a little hard to deal with, wouldn't you say? I mean, I don't understand eternity. I I sit up nights thinking about it and I just go, Lord, it's so hard to believe some of this because I live on such a linear plane. All we do is eat, drink, sleep, breathe. And breed and multiply. That's what we do in this world. (laughs) However, I believe there is an illustration which will give us some type 
of window of understanding of this whole concept of eternity. I have four kids and one wife, and she had them all. And I thank God that I'm not a woman sometimes because that takes real guts and fortitude to bring in another human into this world. But one thing I noticed is that inside the mom is the baby. And from the baby's perspective, it goes nowhere. It's right there next to the heart, hearing the mom's heartbeat, boom, boom, boom. Safe, warm, but as... It grows, it becomes somewhat cramped and crowded. Now, that mother can get in a plane and travel all the way around the world, but from the baby's perspective, the baby stays in the same place, doesn't it? It's just right there. The only thing separating that baby from experiencing this whole great world is a thin layer of skin. However, it is in the world, it is yet to experience it. But once birth occurs, the baby now is a part of this world and experiencing, even though he was in the world. In a real sense, you and I are a part of the eternity that is the Lord. It is His world, it is beyond time. And we, in this body, in this thin layer of skin, experience it, in a very small, minute fashion, but there will come a day, much like the birth as a child, when this body and this carcass will hit the ground and look out. Who knows what that day is going to be like? We will experience the timelessness and the sense of eternity that God has all along. We're only separated by a thin layer of skin. All right, look with me at verse 27 and we'll wrap this up. It's all about respect. In verse 27 he says, Therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Do not be guilty of treating Jesus like the world does with a lack of respect for this meal. Don't do it. He's not talking about you being a worthy person. Only Christ can make you worthy. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, man, tonight is the night to do it. Do not delay. Eternity is just beyond your skin. But it's speaking about the way in which we do it. And... The way that we do it in an unworthy manner is we just take it as rote, as just something that we do as Christians. So here's the little juice, here's the bread, great, I'm going to go home and have a good meal. Instead, it should be approached with the utmost reverence, realizing that every moment that God is here with us. This is not just some purely human event where we get together and read the Word and pat each other on the back and sing beautiful songs. We are right now in the very presence of Almighty God. And He has set this table by the servants of His hand for us. So therefore, it requires of us to be humble, loving, and pure in our approach. Okay, in just a minute... What we're going to do is we 
We'll sing some songs. The lights will go down. And then in just a few, we're going to take communion together. Now, a few things you need to do. Confess your sins to the Lord. Every one of them. Don't hold anything back. You don't have to say them out loud so that you gross everyone out around you. I will be thankful for that. But God knows your heart. God knows what's going on. And so confess your sins to Him. Keep short accounts with others. Forgive those who have wronged you. And if you need to go ask anyone of forgiveness after this service, promise the Lord and go do it. Take care of business now while you have opportunity. I would like to read you something and then we'll close. I have a little book. I have tons of little books. This is one of my favorites. It is the old hymns of the Scottish church. And I love this one. He says, Father of all, from land and sea, the nations sing, Thine, Lord, are we. Countless in number, but in Thee, May we be one. O Son of God, whose love so free for men did make thee man to be, united to our God in thee, may we be one. Join high with low, join young with old, in love that never waxes cold, under one shepherd, in one fold, O make us one. O Spirit blessed from above, Calms, gentle, gliding like a dove. Calm all our strife. Give faith and love. Oh, make us one. So when the world shall pass away, we shall awake with joy and say, Now in bliss of endless day, we all are one. We all are one. We are His body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your goodness. That you have, by your grace, brought us to a place where we now stand ready and prepared to receive your table, your bread, your cup. So, Lord, enable us in these few minutes to open our hearts to that work of your Spirit that will bring glory and honor to your name. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.